you know, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll try to review that. I'll try to review that. So anyway, Moshe already says this. Look at the look at the Chumash. Ba'etahi Amar Hashem Elai Psol Lecha Shnei Lechot Avadim Kriyshanu. You know that in Chasidut, the word Lecha was was seen as being a very difficult word. Psol means to you out the stones which look however they are supposed to look. If you go to most shuls in the world, the Aserita Dibrot are depicted by um, a rectangle with a kippah on top. Right? No? You've never looked at that part of the shul? Well, if you look, you'll see that that's what the Aserita Dibrot are depicted uh, uh, like. Chabad the the Rebbe decided probably correctly that the more a reasonable uh, thing is just a rectangle. So in any event, Moshe Rabbeinu used the stones. He took rocks at a, at, a, at a hammer and he banged out that shape, whatever shape it was, either this shape or that shape. So that, that what Moshe Rabbeinu created was two things. He created the stones that he took up on Har Sinai as a Kodesh Baruch Hu commanded him. And he also created psolet. The word in Hebrew psolet means waste. Waste product. What was the waste that he created? Well, when you you a stone so that little chips come off and they end up on the floor. There's a pile of, of waste. So Hasidut, they said, uh, I mean, just to tell you interesting pshat options. They said, psol lecha, hapsolet bishvilcha. And we'll see what that, that whatever's left over, whatever's left over from ewing the stones, the chips that are on the floor, that's for you. You, Moshe Rabbeinu. So what does that mean? That it, it means there's a some, some sort of awareness of a greater involvement that Moshe Rabbeinu had in the second time over the first time. That the first time, I mean, God did it. God you the stones and wrote on them and gave it to Moshe Rabbeinu. In the second time around, Moshe Rabbeinu you the stones. Also, according to the Chas, this interpretation of Chasidut, he got the psalmet, he got the waste, became his. And that's what he took up into heaven. So it says, You do, Moshe Rabbeinu, what was done at first. Ale is the word that's used to describe Moshe Rabbeinu's greater spiritual capacity. It's true that he's going up a mountain, and when you go up a mountain, you are Alei. But Moshe Rabbeinu, the Alei of Moshe Rabbeinu was... Also, the only Moshe Rabbeinu could do this. Only Moshe Rabbeinu could go up the mountain, the mountain that has um, the glory of God on it. Only Moshe Rabbeinu could do that. So that the tzivui, alei elai hahara, is not only about mountain climbing, but it's also it's also about uh, the capacity of Moshe Rabbeinu to do something. So that's what alei elai, the word alei means. Then the last part of the pasuk. 
says something totally new that we never heard about before, and that is Asita Lecha Aron Eitz. Now, without without looking, without looking at the Parashiot in Shemot, everybody understands that this Aron, which is an Aron Eitz, is probably not the Aron that was in the Mishkan that was built by Bitzalel. Because that Aron was also made out of eights, made out of wood, but it was covered with gold on the inside and covered with gold on the outside. So the way it was made was there were three boxes. It was Bitzalo made three boxes, a bigger box made out of gold, a bit smaller made out of wood. He put the wooden box into the gold, then he put a golden box into the wooden box. So you now had a golden box. Everybody knows that gold is a very soft metal. You can't make things out of gold, right? You, could, uh, you have to put something else in it. You can't have a gold ring because it won't stay put. You have to have gold mixed with something. So the, the way they made it in those days was a leaf, gold leaf covering the box. The box held it steady and gold leaf in the box. But this is a reference to and our own eights. So before we get to Rashi, before we get to Rashi, we say, Vechtov al haluchot, this is God speaking, Vechtov al haluchot et advarim, asharyu al haluchot arishonim asher shibarta, dvarim, adibrot, we call them dibrot, a adiber can have a different amount of words in it, they're not all the same. The diber about Shabbat is very long, lo tirzach, it's very short, but each of them is a Diber. So that's the Dvarim. Those are the Dvarim that I, I God, so to speak, will write on these Luchot. Asher Yua Luchot Rishonim Asher Shibarta. So you remember Asher Shibarta. Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai and he broke the Luchot. He broke the Luchot. How come? After all, Moshe Rabbeinu was optimistic always about the salvation of Am Yisrael. So when HaKadosh Baruch said to Moshe Rabbeinu, let's chuck it, and we'll start over again. And you, Moshe Rabbeinu, will be the father of the nation. Moshe Rabbeinu did not feel inhibited, but stood up to God and said, no, we can't do that. We have to continue. We have to continue. So why did Moshe Rabbeinu break the Luchot? Why did he break the Luchot? Well, it seems to me that Moshe Rabbeinu broke the Luchot because he had no place to put them. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu carrying the Luchot, you know, saw he had something else that he had to do. He had to save the people. He couldn't carry the Luchot anymore. In order to put them down, he had to put them down someplace. But if he had given them to somebody in B'nai Yisrael, it would have been apostasy. It would be terrible. So that he threw them down and broke them. It was Moshe Rabbeinu's way of saying that they had never been given. (coughs) They had never been given. That somehow minimizes the transgression, which is what Moshe Rabbeinu was interested in. It was like Moshe Rabbeinu went up Har Sinai, he got the Luchot, he came down, but that was not the end of the job. The end of the job was to give them to B'nai Yisrael. And Moshe Rabbeinu didn't give them to B'nai Yisrael. So that 
it's somehow justified, whatever you say about the building of the golden calf, that is more justified by Moshe Rabbeinu breaking the Luchot. Right? They, they didn't get anything. The people didn't get anything. Of course, we know that this is just a, a ploy, but, but, but that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was about. He was about saving the people. About saving the people. That was his job. He was the, the Sanigar. He was the defense attorney of Am Yisrael, appointed by God. And as also they say, Rav Nachman Abraslu says it, that if God appoints you to be the defense attorney of God, of Am Yisrael, you obviously can't lose. I mean, if you were on a trial, Moshe Rabbein is not going to lose. He was not an accidental lawyer. He was the defense attorney appointed by God to defend B'nai Yisrael, so he couldn't lose. And therefore, what Moshe Rabbeinu did was always reasonable. It was always reasonable. So in defense of Am Yisrael, he broke the Luchot. He broke the Luchot, and therefore, it's mentioned here, But that's the difference. In the second time, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, you will keep them in the Aron. In other words, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, when Bnei Yisrael are waiting for you to come down from the mountain, the, the, the Luchot have a place in Bnei Yisrael. That will never, that problem of Shvirat Luchot will never come up again. Because there's an Aron. Because there is an Aron. And, and, and therefore the history of the Aron becomes interesting for us. Uh, another couple of sukim. Let's just see the sukim. Va'as Aron atzei shitim ve'fsol shnei luchot avanim ve'karishonim va'al ha'ara u'shtei aluchot biyadi. Moshe Rabbeinu speaking. I did it. I, I got the luchot. I, I made the Aron. I grabbed onto them. I va'al ha'ara. I went up on the mountain. Okay, and then it happened, the, the Luchot were written, and God gave it to Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? We don't know what Bnei Yisrael happened to Bnei Yisrael, but it doesn't matter anymore. Bnei Yisrael are not a condition for the existence of the Luchot. It's the Aron. The Aron guarantees the salvation of Am Yisrael, if you look at it that way, because there's a place to put them. They don't have to, they, they, they don't have to be perfect. B'nai Yisrael doesn't have to be perfect anymore because there's an Aron. The Aron is salvation. Okay. So that's we. So we read. We read, you know, like there is this, this habit today. You know, people say you should read without misfortune. Did you ever have anybody say that? But it's sort of not possible because everybody knows Rashi. Everybody knows something. You can't read if you don't know something. So there's something that you know you got from someplace, and the place you got it from was Rashi. Yeah, you may not remember Rashi. You may not specifically remember. It doesn't matter. The, 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 the tradition of interpretation always beats you. 
It's very hard to be independent-minded. It's also kind of irrelevant. Who cares what anybody thinks? Now, what difference does it make? It's only the tradition of interpretation that is important. Yes, you can quote me. <laughs> but, to, but do quote me, because most people would disagree with what I'm saying, and therefore it's very important to quote me. I think. So let's look at Rashi. We're up to Rashi. Now, you know that Rashi is the teacher. Rashi, Rabban Shel Yisrael, that's what he was called in, uh, in uh, modern uh, sort of Haskalah literature. Rabban Shel Yisrael, the rabbi, the teacher of all B'nai Yisrael. You know that there's a Maharal. You know there's a Maharal? You know the Maharal? They don't learn the Maharal today in Yeshiva. And they don't learn it in semin- women's seminaries. Which means that it's probably really worth it. <laughs> you know? So anyway, the Maharal says, says you should stop teaching Rashi to children. Don't teach Rashi to children. Because when you teach Rashi to children, the children think that it's a, it's a child's play. It's for children. Oh, Rashi. Everybody knows Rashi. So the Maharal wrote a perush on Rashi called Gur Aryeh. That's what it's called. It's about 10 times as long as Rashi. Maybe I'm, I'm, I've got it wrong. Maybe it's 20 times as long as Rashi. To prove, to prove to everybody that Rashi is profound and that the profundity of Rashi can only be understood by, by grown and mature uh, uh, people who know Torah. If you don't know Torah, you're not going to stand Rashi. But we're going to give it a, cha- a try anyway, in spite of that Mara. So look at Rashi. Ba'itahi, b'sof arba'im yom, nitratzem li. It was after 40 days, it's as though, so to speak, God softened. He accepted Moshe Rabbeinu's argument. I told you that Moshe Rabbeinu can't lose, right? It's not possible. Because he's appointed by God to be the defense attorney. But it took 40 days. 40 days. You remember that Moshe Rabbeinu went up on Harsinai? When did Moshe Rabbeinu go up on Harsinai for the 40 days? Vav Sivan. That's right. Very good. Whoever said that. Vav Sivan. Right? And when did the 40 days end? It's very easy to remember. The 48 days ended. No, no. 40 days ended. Shavuos is when they started. They ended on Yudzai and Betamos. And then Moshe Rabbeinu drayed around 40 days saving B'nai Yisrael. I mean, whatever he did. And then we got to Rosh Chodesh Elul. Rosh Chodesh Elul, Moshe Rabbeinu went up on Har Sinai. Another 40 days and came down on Yom Kippur. Very good. So you see how easy it is to remember Moshe Rabbeinu, those 120 days. It's a a cinch. How do we know all of this? Don't ask. Also Rashi. Yeah, Rashi several places. Points out the the dates. How did Rashi know? He copied it from a book called Seder Olo. Right? Which is um, a book that Rashi had like on his desk so to speak. I don't know if he had a desk. But if he had a desk, he would have that book on the desk. I've got it. What? You have it also on your desk? <laughs> yeah, you can get it. It's inaccessible. No, it's not inaccessible. Not inaccessible at all. You can buy it a collection of no, five... I'm saying you can't understand it. Oh, oh, you can't understand it. Oh, that's no problem. <laughs> so God said to me, V'amar li p'sol lecha, v'achakach v'asit aron. 
Vani Asiti Aront Chila. You see what Rashi is bothered by? God said to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, God said to Rashi, Psolecha, and then Pasuk, Pasuk Aleph. You see Pasuk Aleph? It says Psolecha, and then it says, Vasiti Aron Eitz. What did, what did uh, Moshe Rabbeinu do? Uh, what did Moshe Vaas? You see Pasuk Gimel? Back to Pasuk Gimel. Vaas Aron Blah 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 blah. Vech tov ala luchot. Vech sol sich sicha. Back to pasuk. Vaas aron aleishitiv. Vech sol shnei luchot avanim karishonim. First he made the aron, and then he made the luchot. What did God tell him to do? First make the luchot, and then make the aron. So what does Rashi say? Rashi is omalip sol lechavachakach vasit aron, vani asit aron tchila. I made the Aaron first. Sheavo, v'aluchot biyadi. Hey, cham et name. Right? Where will I put? I have to have them before I go up on Har Sinai. And and therefore, Rashi doesn't really explain. We would like Rashi to explain. So how come Moshe Rabbeinu changed what God told him? I mean, what's the big deal? Why shouldn't he make the 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 avanim? So according to Rashi, even if the, he made the Avanim, and they had nothing written on them, right, because he didn't go up for the 40 days yet, he just had the Avanim, he still would not have been able to put them down unless there was an Aron. You see, he would have had a problem. If he would have followed orders, if Moshe would have followed orders, then he would have to first do the Psolecha, and then do the Aron. But if he did the Psolecha first, He'd have to put the stones down in order to have to build the aron. It's very hard to build an aron when you're holding things in your hand. So Rashi says, Rashi says, well, I needed a place to put them. So I built the aron first. Now this reminds us, those of you who remember, this reminds us of B'Tzalel. You remember the parashiyot at the end of Shmot, right? Teruma, Tetzaveh. Kitiso Vayakel Pekude. Everybody knows that Vayakel Pekude is a is a like a repeat of Teruba Tetzave for some reason, right? I can't explain all of that now, but you just have to remember. Now in Teruma, in Teruma you have all of the Kalim of the Beit Hamikdash, including the Aron. In Tetzave you have the Tzivuyim about building a Mishkan. In other words, first build the furniture and then build the house. Along came B'Tzalel, Ben-Uri Ben-Chur, right? B'Tzalel, who was, as Chachamim say, what do Chachamim say? B'Tzel Kel, which I never really understood, but I know it means something good. That he was in the shadow of God. Like why, why would that image be, be chosen? I don't, I don't know exactly. But B'tzalel was a great man. He was B'tzel Elohim. And he knew that God didn't really want him to do that. Because first you build a house, and then you build, then you put in the furniture, right? Sometimes you do it the opposite way, and usually it makes you unhappy. But you imagine having a, a, a table, but not having a building to put it into. So that's what B'tzalel invented on his own. Now, if you look at the Perish of the Vush Mordechai, Mordechai Yofe on Rashi, 
is one of the hundreds of perushim on Rashi, but the Mordechai Yafeh was the Levush, which meant he knew a thing or two, and he wrote a perush on Rashi. If you learn the perush of the Levush, on the Potsig at the beginning of the parasha of Vayakel, right, we're talking about Vayakel, Truma Tetzava Kisisa Vayakel, he talks about Betzalel, and he tells us, imagine this, that this is the root of the Torah Shabal Peh. And you know what Torah Shabal Peh is? That no matter what you get, you have to figure it out. There is nothing that doesn't have to be figured out. In other words, there's no such thing as the simple pshat, you know, which is something I mentioned at the beginning when we started talking. There's no such thing there's only the correct interpretation. That's all there is. Now, however it is you decide that you get to the right, the correct interpretation, however you decide that, okay, so you decide that. But you know that in the history, there's a difference between texts that have a tradition of interpretation. And in spite of the fact that I'm going to be undone here, I mention Homer. Homer... There's a tradition of interpretation. So we could say that we know what it means. A Sumerian text, haha, one upmanship on my part, don't have a tradition of interpretation. Therefore, when you read a, 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 a Sumerian text, it's extremely boring, and you don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you know what the words mean, but you don't know what they're talking about. So that without a tradition of interpretation, you don't have anything. There's nothing. There's nothing, there are no words. Words don't mean anything. They mean what you make them mean within a context. So if you look at a dictionary, which people don't do anymore, but I say if you Google a word, so that Google might give you 20 interpretations for that word. So what are you going to do? I mean, well, how do you figure it out? Do you, so you read the puzzle, you put interpretation one, interpretation two, interpretation three. So that's what Tarish Valpeh is. Tarish Valpeh is the correct interpretation. The correct interpretation, the tradition of interpretation. So we learned, we learned it from many different places. But one of the places we learned it from was B'tzalel. B'tzalel said, B'tzalel said, it cannot be that a Kodesh Bochum wants me to build an Aron and then not have any place to put it. So first I'm going to build the Bayat and then I'm going to build the Aron. Moshe Rabbeinu said, remember Moshe Rabbeinu here? So Moshe Rabbeinu, what did he say? What did Moshe Rabbeinu say? He said, it cannot be that God wants me to chisel out these stones and then have to put them down on the ground someplace while I then am making an Aron. So it must be that God wants me to make an Aron and then chisel out the Luchot and go up on Har Sinai. Ah, it says in the Pesach, Pung Fakert, you know, as they say, it says Pung Fakert, but there's no such thing as Pung Fakert. There's only the right interpretation. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching us in this Pasuk here, something that we didn't expect. Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching us about the correct interpretation. And the correct interpretation is what I, I, I put my seichel into it. Like, I'm involved. It's not just like, like uh, uh, it's, it's a prophecy or it's something that defies reason. But no, I have to read the Pesukim and read the directives and get involved in them. That's what Torah Shaval Peh is. You want to ask a question or leave the room? 
Could you say this even though it was really the direct word of Hashem? Yeah. Why did Akash Baruch say that? Yeah. When did he well, say it? They were interpreting a written Torah. They were hearing a direct... This was a command. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was hearing a direct from right. God. So he just decided that the Hashem meant something else or he thought it needed to be that? I, I thought I explained it. it was God <coughs> is interested in us participating in the flow of understanding the Torah. This is, this is a story about something that happened and worked out. God did not say to Moshe Rabbeinu, hey, you got it wrong. Pasuk Aleph, the Pasuk Gimel, you forgot what was going on. It doesn't say that in the Chumash. It doesn't say that about B'Tzalel. doesn't say that about B'Tzalel. So, so my feeling is that God was pleased that the people of Israel are alive and well and that they're thinking about what they're doing and they're interpreting the Psukim in, in the right, I mean, what, what, what happened? The, the, uh, the Pesach says, Ayin Tachadayin. And the Gemara says, Momo. So what is that? What is that? Is that like a, a painful reflection on the situation? Or is it the simple shot? That's what, that's what God wants. God wants us to understand that while we cannot uh, uh, demand perfect uh, punishment the idea of perfect punishment is there that was, you know, when somebody does an Avera and he has to stand before God he's an ayin tachad ayin person but that doesn't mean that the Torah gives me permission to do that because as far as the Bezdin is concerned it's always a suffix, it's always doubt you never know what happened exactly but the person himself knows if he's an ayin tachat ayin person. So if he is, he has to do, he has to be remorseful for doing the avera. But we cannot punish him in that way because we don't know what happened. We never know. That's that's why capital punishment in Chazal was almost non-existent. And Rabbi Akiva said, if you kill somebody once in forty years, you're murdering Bezdin. What does that mean? What's 40 years? 40 years is, is, is the lifespan of any dying in those days. Who lived more than, more than 70? Nobody. So what do you mean he's a murdering bastard? Is that you can't ever know. You don't know what happened yesterday. Why is my phone doing this? Oh, this is the recorded. Oh, it's not my phone. That's why it's doing that. <laughs> okay. No good? You still haven't got it? Yeah, no, I haven't. You haven't? Because if, if they're interpreting it according to what makes sense to them, when, when Moshe was told to, to speak to the rock and he struck the rock, he was punished for not doing exactly what God told him to do. So how do, you, how do they know when... It's when it's okay and legitimate to change what God's commandment was, and in some instances we've got where people are punished for doing it. I think that that's an excellent question. But I can't accept it. Okay. As a question, I mean. Because your assumption is that you know what Moshe Rabbeinu did wrong. And that's a, that's a leap. We don't know what Moshe Rabbeinu did wrong. 
But we do know, or we can imagine, that the standards applied to Moshe Rabbeinu might be different than the standards applied to anybody else. And I think you, if you work at it, it'll fit in to what I said. But we know, I mean, I don't have to defend myself. You have heard of the Gemara, right? I mean, I imagine you don't learn Gemara, but you have heard of it. <laughs> well, so maybe somebody will tell you what goes on in the Gemara. What goes on in the Gemara is an ongoing fight about what God actually told us to do. About every single point that you could imagine. I mean, that's what Gemara is. I mean, it's also a few other things. But it is that, without a doubt. Whoever learned Gemara can either agree or disagree. See that? No one disagrees. So I don't know about Moshe. It's a good question. But it would mean that we would first have to figure out what Moshe Rabbeinu did wrong and whether he misunderstood the divine directive or not. But I can tell you what the Sefei Korim says. Very good pshat. Of Yosef Albo, Sefei Korim. It's a book that they don't learn in yeshivas. But it's a very good book. In spite of that. Of Yosef Albo says that when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moshe Rabbeinu heard that B'nai Yisrael were like annoyed about not having enough water. Remember the story? You know, you remember the story? <laughs> water, they didn't have water, they complained. You know, they're always complaining. So they complained about water, they complained about water, they complained about water. So Moshe Rabbeinu ran away into the Toal Moed and he said to God, what should I do? So Rabbi Yosef Albo said that when Yoshua ben Nun was fighting against the eye, and the war was not going well, you know what he did? Uh, Yoshua ben Nun, that is. Yoshua ben Nun, he said, Shemesh begivon dom, v'yareach be'emek ayalon. Which means, he told the sun and the moon to stand still so that he could finish the battle in daylight. Apparently that's how they did it in those days. You needed daylight. And he was not going to finish. So he commanded the sun and the moon. He commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. And they did. And Rabbi Yosef Albo says, Rabbi Yosef Albo says that when you're the leader of the people and you're responsible for their welfare, you've got to believe that God is on your side. And even though God did not tell Yoshua bin Nun what to do, he did it anyway. And Moshe Rabbeinu, instead of exhibiting leadership, when the people came to complain about water, right, instead of that, Moshe Rabbeinu went run away. He ran away. That was the Chilul Hashem. It had nothing to do with hitting the rock or not hitting the rock. Everybody agrees that uh, that doesn't make any difference. I mean, why would you think that if you hit a rock, water's going to come out? There's no, there's no real nafkemina. That's the question. That these questions are all summarized by the Barbanel. Wrote a very uh, good commentary on the, on the Torah. So it was not. It's not so clear. I'm telling you the the Albo. You don't have to like it or not like it. You can do whatever you want. But the Albo is an indication of the fact that Yoshua Binun uh, uh, did it. Like, he did something that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't do. Moshe Rabbeinu was faulted for his leadership. So now we go back to that Rashi. Can you just one more question on this? 
So we you have, have one question. One question. Well, I don't know one more question. Um, we have, we are not Moshe Rabbeinu or Yoshua bin Nun or the rabbis in the Talmud. So who is who still has this authority to interpret God's word? Everybody. Do you ever hear of Shailot to Chuvot? Yeah. So, who has the authority? But in, in, in sitting in a Beit Midrash, do, are we continuing Torah Shabbat Peh, or are we just sort of... I mean, organizationally, how do we get it organized? So every group of people, depending on the kind of yarmulkes they wear, have themselves organized according to uh, some kind of leadership who decides. Okay. Right? And, and, and that's what why people call it today Das Torah. And Das Torah means that, uh, that you can go to get a haircut and the barber will tell you what to do. And you can go to Rabbanim and ask them what to do and they'll tell you what to do. And we, we think that the opinion of the Rabbanim is more significant than the opinion of the barber. And other people end with the barber. In Israel, in Israel uh, taxi drivers serve that purpose. We are always very happy to tell you about how the war is going and what's going to be and what should be and what should not be. So that's also Das Torah of a sort. There are people who accept that. But we think that you should go to Rabbanim. Now, do Rabbanim know everything? No, they don't know everything. But they don't know less than me. You know, they're like, uh, they're informed. Like people talk to them. People tell them things. So eventually you find some, some rabbi who you think uh, can fill that, that niche for you and tell you what, as a Jew, you should be doing in response to some event in history. So there's a, there's a hierarchy. Everybody, for everybody, there's a hierarchy. For everybody, there's some feeling that I know this much and there's somebody who knows that much. Too liberal a position about the right-wing, narrow-minded idea? No, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. Okay, so look at the Rashi again. Rashi says, Right? So that part of Rashi is a little unclear. Obviously, Moshe Rabbeinu thought that you could build the Aron when you came down from Har Sinai. But of course, Rashi says, then you'd have no place to put the, the Luchot. And you, since you didn't know for sure what would be with Am Yisrael, you needed a place to put the Luchot. Now, Rashi says, This is not the Aron that Betzal, then there's a new topic. This is not the Aaron that B'tzalel made. B'tzalel, remember B'tzalel, the parish of Truma, describes all the Kalim of the, Beit, of the Mishkan. And the parish of Ayakel, right, describes building the building. And the parish of Pekude, again, it describes the building of the Aaron by B'tzalel. So he says, he, Rashi, Rashi says, zehu This is not the Aaron that Betzalel made Sharei Mishkan Lo Nitaskubo Ad Lachar Yom HaKippurim because they didn't start building the Mishkan until after Yom HaKippurim. Yom HaKippurim, the day that Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai, after 120 days, 120 days from um, Shavuot, which wasn't Shavuot yet. It was just Vav Sivan. Right? It was Vav Sivan. Moshe Rabbeinu, or Zion Sivan, the Gemara says, a machlokas, everything's a machlokas. Everything. 
Every obvious, simple, straightforward fact is a machlokas in the Gemara, which itself tells you something about how the Jewish people live. Sharei mishkan lo deskubo ad lachai yom ha-kipurim, ki beriditom min ahar tzivalahem al melechet ha-mishkan. When Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain, he commanded them once again, and there was, there was already Truma Tetzaveh. Truma Tetzaveh might have belonged to by the first time Moshe Rabbeinu came down. It was, it was before Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain the first time. He had already taught them Truma Tetzaveh so they could get going right away. Of course, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. So now in Yom Kippurim, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vayakel. He gets them all together and he commands them to build a Mishkan. Right? Tziva lahem al melechet ha-mishkan b'tzalel asam mishkan t'chila v'achakach haron v'kelim. Here's Rashi. Just like Moshe Rabbeinu changed, so too b'tzalel said, nimsa ze aron acher haya. The aron that b'tzalel made was a different aron. This aron was made before Moshe Rabbeinu went up in the mountain 40 days earlier, which is Rosh Chodesh Elul. And the, the, the Ark of Itzala was made for uh, 40 days later. It started to make Nibtzah Zaharon Acher Hayah. V'zeu Shayah Yotzei Mahem Lemilchama. So now Rashi takes another giant leap and he says, so what did they do with this Aron? So what happened to it? What happened to the Aron of Moshe Rabbeinu? Is that an idea? This is not, it's not, this is all being made up by Rashi on the spot. And Rashi says, we all know that there was an Aaron that went out with B'nai Yisrael and Milchama. There was a Kohen, a Kohen that went out with B'nai Yisrael, it was called Mashuach Milchama, anointed for the purposes of the, of the battle, of the war. And there was also the Aaron that went out with them at, at a war. So Rashi says, the Aaron that went out with B'nai Yisrael when they went to war was this Aaron. The Aron that Moshe Rabbeinu built in order that there should be a place to put the Luchot. Of course, after B'Tzalel built his Aron, they took the Luchot from Aron number two and must have put them into Aron, no, from Aron number one and put them into Aron number two because that's where they were. They were in that Aron, you know, it had gold in it, gold and wood and gold. So that's where the Luchot, the, the whole Luchot were. So we, we have this problem <coughs> or question what was in this Aron that went out with them la milchama? Because we know that in the Aron in the Beit HaMikdash, what was in the Aron of the Beit HaMikdash? The Luchot. Then there's a question about the broken Luchot, where they were. The but what was there? The Tzinsenet Man, the Matea of Aron, and Shemana Mishcha. The oil that was used to anoint Kohanim, Gedolim, and Melachim. Not every Melech, in other words, the halacha is, Melech ben Melech doesn't have to be anointed. Right, the Gemara at the end of Zuachim, Melech ben Melech does not have to be anointed, but, but a Kohen Gadol always has to be anointed. So that, that uh, the, the Mishnah says, that if there's a Kohen Gadol, and he becomes possible, like he has some kind of physical blemish, he can't do the Avodah, you appoint another Kohen in his stead. He's still alive, but he's like uh, into, he's being rehabilitated in Alcoholics Anonymous or something, so he can't be, he can't be a Kohen Gadol. You appoint another one as a Kohen Gadol. That one that you appoint as a Kohen Gadol is anointed as well. And then when Kohen Gadol number one is cured of whatever ailed him, 
he returns to being Kohen Gadol. And Kohen Gadol number two, the, the replacement Kohen Gadol, is, is of dubious status, let us say. He can't, he can no longer uh, be a Kohen Gadol, but he doesn't become a Kohen Hedyot. That's the, that's the language in the, the language of the Mishnah. Hedyot is a regular one. He doesn't revert back to his old status, but he's kind of in between. He remains in between. So that the Kohen Mashuach Milchama is the Kohen that was anointed by this oil, especially to go out of B'nai Yisrael Milchama, and he went out with an Aron. He went out with an Aron. This caused tremendous problems in the time of Eli, where they went out with Aron number one. We don't know if there was Aron number two. Rashi says there, was a, there were two of them. Rashi says that the Aron that they went out with in Milchama was Aron, the road that Moshe Rabbeinu built. And the Aron that stayed in the Mishkan was the Aron that Betzalel built. But we know that at the end of the period of Shiloh, Shiloh, I just have to diverge for a minute, okay? Maybe less than a minute. Maybe more than a minute. When B'nai Yitzhak came to Eretz Yisrael, the first Mishkan was set up. Does everybody know this? You know, like you do Tanakh. So, no, nobody does Tanakh. The first Mishkan was set up in Gilgal. Gilgal, you know Gilgal. If you go on the road from today from Yerushalayim to Yericho, and then you go north to Beit Shan, and you have that in your minds, you've all been Eretz Israel, you all did this already. You go north. So you pass a sign that says Gilgal, which is more or less where Gilgal was in those days. It was like a few kilometers west of the Jordan. So they set up there for 14 years the Mishkan in a place called Gilgal. During those 14 years, there was Kibush V'chalukah. They conquered the land and they divided it up. After they conquered the land, they divided it up. And during that time, there was a heter of Bamot. You could, you could sacrifice any place. You didn't have to sacrifice in the Mishkan. Then this Mishkan moved to Shiloh. Shiloh is al Gabahar. If you make a line straight north from Yerushalayim. Right, Yerushalayim, Beidel, Shiloh, Shechem. Right, you go up that. So in Shiloh, which is pretty close to Yerushalayim, they, um, they moved the Mishkan. It was more centrally located. It was just like Yerushalayim, but they, they hadn't conquered Yerushalayim yet. Yerushalayim belonged to the Yevusi. It was Ir Yevusi. So the Mishkan was in Shiloh for 360 years. That's a long time, right? At the end of those 360 years, B'nai Yisrael went to war against the Pelishtim, and they took the Aron Kodesh with them. The Kohen Gadol's name was Eli. Eli. And they took the Aaron Kodesh and the Aaron Kodesh was stolen away from them. And Shiloh was destroyed. From Shiloh they moved to Nov and then to Givon. And by that time, David HaMelech had conquered Yerushalayim. So he moved the, the Aaron. They got the Aaron back. And that's a sep- all these are separate stories. They're all good stories. And they brought the Aron into Yerushalayim. They brought this Aron into Yerushalayim. So that the Aron, during this period of time, we don't know that there was another Aron. 
It means there's only one Aron. There's only one Aron that we know of. Unless there was another Aron that was empty. If what you say is correct, in the Gemara Menachos, it says that they put the Shivrei uh, Aluchot into the Aron as well. Right? And then the Gemara says that there was a Madaf. Uh, a Madaf is a shelf. Shelf came out of, uh, out of the Aron. And they put the uh, extra stuff on that shelf. This was all true. This was all true until Yoshiao HaMelech. You know that in Yehuda there were two courageous, positive kings. One was named Chizkiyahu, and the other is named Yoshiyahu. Now, Yoshiyahu did a rather remarkable thing, but I think it's important for us in this discussion of the Aron. Yoshiyahu did a remarkable thing. I think... I think you've been patient long enough. The Yoshiao did it a remarkable thing. He got rid of the Aron, the Shemen, the Matav Aron, and what was the other thing? The Man. The Man, the Man. He got rid of them, he hid them. In other words, believed what it said in the Torah, that if their people are not good, they're going to be exiled. So Yoshiao wanted to guarantee he wanted to guarantee that when the Jews came back from exile and rebuilt the Beit HaMikdash, that they would have these things ready for them. But in some remarkable way, I mean, that's what the Gemara says. I don't know how it happened. They forgot where Yoshiel hid the stuff. And then by Cheney, and by Cheney, they didn't have any of this. They didn't have an Aron, they didn't have a... So it turns out, and for the end of Bayit Rishon, then let's just talk about the Aron. According to this, Yoshiao took the Aron and he hid it. So what do we hit it? He, he must have hit it someplace, not in the Beit HaMikdash. So that already for the time of Yoshiyahu, there was no Aron in the Beit HaMikdash. Which means that, what does it mean? That you don't need it. That you don't need the Aron. And even though it says clearly that Yom Kippur, that we spritz the blood of the Chatat, Bain, Bain Habadim. You know the Badim are those poles, right? You know that even after they put the Aron in the Beit HaMikdash, and the Aron's not going to be moved anymore any place until Yoshiao came along and moved it. But the Badim stayed there. They stayed stuck in the Aron Kodesh because they determined the place. You know, Bain Habadim was the place that they spritzed <coughs> on Yom HaKippurim. So you needed the Aron only to determine where that place was. But if you knew where the place was and there was no Aron, you could still do the Avoda on Yom HaKippurim. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an issue. So that the Aron, the Aron turned out to be, even though it sounds to us to be the most important thing that you have in the Beit HaMikdash, it was actually unnecessary. Because at the end of Bayat Rishon, and for all of Bayat Sheni, there was no Aron. But there was Avoda, the Avoda in the Beit the, in the Beit Hamikdash. The other things you certainly don't need. Uh, the Tzitzit Aman and the, the Mateshel Aron were all added as an afterthought by Kodesh Bochu. I don't mean afterthought, but I mean that it was a separate Sivui to Moshe Rabbeinu. Put them also there, but they weren't part of the Avoda. They weren't part of the Avoda, and and uh, uh, the Gemara says when they didn't have Shemin Amishcha, when they didn't have Shemin Amishcha, they would. They would use some kind of a parsimon oil. Parsimon is like a persimmon, I think. I don't know exactly what a persimmon is. 
It's like orange, right? Shiny. I don't know what they do. They made some kind of a perfume out of this persimmon. And they poured it on the, on the head of the Kohen, Gadol. They didn't have kings anymore. It was the interesting thing is that the first king of Israel was at the Kohen, Gadol, right? The Beit HaChashmonaim. So it was the same anointing. They didn't... So in any event, in any event, all of this, I mean, we have to come for the second part of the Sheyu, which is about the Ramban. Uh, the Ramban has a different take on all this, but Rashi is good to learn. So, so, uh, so it seems like the uh, um, it was the what was in the in the Aron that they didn't need the Aserita Dibrot. We know that Rashi says the Aserita Dibrot equal all the mitzvot, and we know that Rav Sadia Gon wrote a book in which he tried to include all the mitzvot of the Torah in the Aserita Dibrot. Rashi says it though. Rashi says it in the Chumash. In uh, in the parsha of uh, I think in Mishpatim at the end of Mishpatim Rashi says the Sarta Dibrod include all the mitzvot of the Torah all the Torah so that the Sarta Dibrod you see that the Torah Bechtav, which is the Sarta Dibrod is put into an Aron and never opened up again we have a few examples of that they're like amulets. You have heard of a mezuzah, right? right? So it's there, but you know, look at it. I mean, you, you may think that kissing the mezuzah is a big deal, but you don't really know if there's anything in there. Uh, you know, I'm not saying somebody's trying to fool you, but you don't know. It's, it's something you never see, or, or you have to fill in. Now, all of these things, the mezuzah and the tefillin, theoretically never have to be checked. Unless something happens. Like, let's say, your tefillin fall into the, into the ocean or something. So then you should check them. Because there's a reason to think that something might have happened. But if you don't know that anything happened, you don't have to check them. It's logical. It has something to do with this probability theory. Like, why should you check it after seven years? And if you check after seven years and you find out that Phil an apostle, so does that mean they came to us that day? Or maybe the day before? Or maybe the year before? Or maybe you haven't been putting on Tefillin for a year. That's a little distressing. But you're not going to check, check them every day before you put them on, like you do with tzitzes. Tzitzes you check every day because you can do it. You can't check Tefillin every day, but, there's, but the likelihood that Tefillin apostle on any particular day is exactly the same. I uh, never mind. So that, uh, I was a math major. What I mean to say is that the nature of Torah Shabbich was that you don't really look at it. It's just there to prove that what you're thinking about is what God wants you to do. Now, uh, Torah Shavich Sav, Torah is in the Aron. It, it was just there. Nobody ever looked at it. The, the Gemara says that there was three Sifrei Torah in the Mishkan, in the Mikdash, which were used to check um, other Sifrei. You gave it the Sefer Torah, you didn't know what the right Nusuk was. You looked in the, 
in the Beit HaMikdash at the Sfarim that were there, and, they, and you can't compare it, but you didn't look it into the Aron Kodesh. The Aron Kodesh was, a, the, the Luchot Abrit were kind of an irrelevancy, because that was the, the message of Matan Torah. See, the, the first Luchot, the first Luchot were not given with Torah Baal Peh, as far as we know, because God trusted B'nai Yisrael's intuition, just like Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov had intuition about what God wanted, and they were always able to do the right thing, and therefore Chazal say, straight-faced, that Avram Avinu kept all the mitzvahs of the Torah, including, as Raji says, Eruv Tchumim, you know, like you have to figure something that's really odd. And they say, Moshe Rabbeinu, you go, what do you mean Moshe Rabbeinu came? So the way I understand it is that, that the intuition, that Moshe Rabbeinu understood how God wanted the world to run. And therefore, he had that good intuition. So, so, Moshe, so God told B'nai Yisrael, Right? That's what they heard. According to this one or that one or the other one, Moshe Rabbeinu and B'nai Yisrael heard, And what did B'nai Yisrael do? They went and they built a, a golden calf. They didn't make a, a, an Aveira against Shabbos or against murder or against uh, whatever. Uh, the Aseret or Dibrot say, but the Avera that they did was an Avera of misunderstanding that which they had learned directly from God. Ergo, what does that mean? That they don't have the capacity. They don't. They can't be Moshe and Aaron. It was like a proof almost, because the sin of the golden calf, whatever you define it as. However you explain it, doesn't really make any difference. It's a denial of Anoche Hashem Elokecho Velo Yelcho. It's a denial of those two Dibrot that B'nai Yisrael itself heard. And therefore, the Torah had to be given ultimately with Torah Shaval Peh. What is the first glimmer of Torah Shaval Peh? Solecha and Aaron Eitz. Yeah, B'tzalel. First he made the Bayit and then he built the Kalim, because the Torah could not subsist on the intuition of B'nai Yisrael, proven by the golden calf, and had to, had to have like a kind of a Torah Shabal Peh component that Moshe Rabbeinu kept teaching them and explaining to them, etc., until they got it on their own, unlike the first time around when they weren't able to get it. Good Shabbos. So that just leaves us with the Ramban. I'm sorry you had to. But Salon had a Torah Shabbat Peh because he interpreted, he got to build a house before. Yeah, he was special. He was Betzel Kim. That's what the, the Gemara says. That, that he had special 